market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Connor Matchett. I'm the deputy political editor at the paper. With me this week, again in the Scottish Parliament, is our political editor, Alistair Grant. Alistair, welcome. How are you? Not too bad. How are you? Not too bad. Looking forward to... SNP conference coming up. It's uh, might be quite an expensive one and a painful one for my head, depending <laughs> on how much is imbibed. But it's been a busy week in Parliament. Let's talk first off about FMQs today, Thursday, yesterday for you listening and what happened in the chamber. Yeah, so I think it was quite a difficult first minister's questions for Nicola Sturgeon. It was a bit of a health extravaganza. So both Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross and Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar are both written in on health problems with waiting times, waiting times for ambulances, waiting times for cancer treatment. And I think it's a topic that is obviously politically potent, but they also brought up individual examples of cases. So they had kind of, instead of just a kind of a mass dump of figures, which you sometimes have these kind of things, and they're important figures. That's not to say that these figures aren't worth examining and worth looking at and sometimes quite frightening, mm-hmm. but they can also be quite overwhelming and quite hard to figure out what they actually mean in practice. But both Douglas Ross and Anna Sauer brought up these individual cases which I think Nicola Sturgeon finds hard to deal with for understandable reasons, just because you're talking about real people, real things that happened. It actually reminds me of something that the former Scottish Labour leader, Richard Leonard, used to be quite good at in First Minister's questions. He he often struggled in FMQs, but one of the things he did quite successfully a few times was he brought up individual cases and would sometimes point up to the public public gallery and say, you know, Mrs X is actually here today, Mm -hmm. First Minister, you know, what would you say to them? And it was always quite difficult for Nicola Sturgeon to deal with. And I think it was quite effective from their point of view today. And it was really serious cases that they were bringing up. So we had things like a 32 hour wait for an ambulance. We had um, a woman from Edinburgh, I think, who uh, had to wait months for a diagnosis and treatment on a cancer case and she later, later sadly died. And I think it's, yeah, it was a difficult one for Nicola Sturgeon, as I think health always is. And as, particularly as we're going into winter. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the concerns are that these problems exist now. We're very aware of the problems facing the NHS. But if anything, you know, they're going to potentially get worse. We're going into these really, really difficult months. Things like the flu, a traditional time of year, a traditional kind of pinch point for the NHS. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of fears over what that means. Yeah, and health has been a, a go-to, hasn't it, for in particular Anna Sawa and also you know, Douglas Ross has banged the drum on, you know, the Murray maternity problems that are up in the northeast as well. It's a it's a comfortable position for both of them to go in on. And, you know, talking about the approach at FMQs that they take, I've always thought that that kind of very stats-based approach where I, I think I've always thought that Scottish Labour is slightly worse at it than, than the Conservative Party, but you end up listening to, to FMQs or at least often in the past you've listened to FMQs and you just hear statistic after statistic after statistic now for the average person a lot of these things don't really mean much until you put them into into serious context but personal stories that were used this week and in other weeks you know have that 
impact, don't they? That, you know, just, I don't think stats really have. And this FMQs at the end of the day, like Prime Minister's questions down in London, it's all about the political theatre rather than trying to change anything. Yeah, well, it's about political impact. And I think you're right. I mean, it's one of the first things you learn as a journalist that if you're doing a story involving stats, involving figures, Mm -hmm. you want a case study. Mm. You want an example of someone who's been affected by it. Because readers identify with them. They identify with people. They identify with faces. Uh, It's the same in politics. You want these individual examples. Uh, And I think one of the interesting bits of FMQs today actually was Nicholas Sturgeon kind of coming back to Douglas Ross and saying, you know, you supported the 45p tax cut income tax cut introduced, well, introducing a new turned on yeah. by the UK government, uh, that would have led to you know, millions being taken out of the health service. You know, how can you talk about these things, essentially? How can you be trusted to kind of talk about these things? And Douglas Ross came back, you know, basically saying, don't make uh, political points on these issues. They're too serious. And he brought up his own uh, individual it's a very experience. Story, yeah, it? of kind of following his, his wife as she was in labour, I think, on the way to hospital, in the ambulance. And then having to watch his, I think his child went through some kind of medical procedure. And it was obviously quite a harrowing experience for him. It's something that he's remembered. And I think that you could really feel the tension in the chamber when that came up and how how strongly they both feel about it, actually. I think as well, the FM seems to struggle, as you said earlier, with that, how to approach that sort of thing. Because she's, she's always very quick to say, you know, none of these experiences are acceptable. But I, I suppose the question is, is what can you say when the services are failing people in, in this sort of way? It's a very difficult thing politically to respond to. She, she tried bringing up, you know, cuts to spending means that you, you've advocated for this. Is that was her response to Douglas Ross, you know, going, I will still bring this up because of that. But it, it, it almost comes across as slightly insensitive. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's part of the wider point that Nicola Sturgeon often comes back to in FMQs. And I think it is a you know, a fair point that basically the pressures in the NHS up here are linked to funding decisions taken down south. I mean, that is just a fact in terms of your overall spending package and the, the block grant the Scottish government receives from the UK government. Yeah, I mean, she's always very keen to stress that these things are not acceptable. It's not acceptable that people are waiting hours and hours for an ambulance, for treatment. All these examples are brought up are not acceptable, but... It still happens. It still happens, and uh, those pressures still exist, and whether you think the blame lies with the Scottish or UK governments, there's a problem that needs fixed. Let's quickly chat about Humza Youssef, who is, you know, obviously the health secretary at the minute, um, has had previous high-profile roles in government. Many people, you know, suggest that his role as health secretary was a bit of a test um, as a potential, one of the many potential successes to Nicola Sturgeon in the long run. How, how do we judge his performance so far in that role? Because, I mean, it's been with the caveat of, you know, coming out of COVID, arguably being dealt a very difficult hand. But, you know, has he has he done enough to, you know, demonstrate that he, he can cope in the top job? Well, I mean, you're right that the, the health secretary role is seen as a kind of poison chalice in a way. It's an extremely like difficult role. Yeah. And it was seen as a bit of a test for him. You know, he's often spoken about as a potential mm-hmm. next first minister. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon was health secretary before she was ever first minister. So it's a role that she knows well. It's a brief that she knows. Probably was a bit of an element of testing him, seeing how he did. I think to be fair to Hamza Yusuf, there's probably never been a more difficult time. Uh, I mean, in fact, there definitely hasn't been a more difficult time. <laughs> We've come out of a pandemic that's completely changed everything. We've got these huge cost of living pressures, budgetary pressures at the moment are unprecedented. Uh, and he's having to grapple with these massive problems that aren't unique to Scotland. We see them across the UK, we see them across the world. And I think it's it's an extremely tough brief. I mean, you know, a lot of people maybe haven't been uh, overly impressed with him, but I think it's an extremely 
yes, yeah, it's, it's a tough brief to handle. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we've got SNP conference coming up this weekend, you know, Saturday through Monday. We've got the Supreme Court hearings Tuesday, Wednesday next week. Many people think, you know, the de facto referendum is Nicola Sturgeon's route out of the First Minister post. I don't know how much focus is going to be on that and on potential you know, successes at the SNP conference. But, you know, they've got big, big issues within the SNP to, to grapple with, which they seemingly aren't willing to do in public at the very least at the minute. They don't seem to have the same sort of public reckoning of leadership contenders as maybe, say, the, the Conservatives down south. No, I mean, traditionally, SNP... I mean, we've kind of spoken about this before in this podcast. They've traditionally been, certainly the modern SNP, very good at avoiding that kind of public infighting that you might expect in a party of their size and success. You know, we see it in the Tory party. We see it in the Labour party, even though they're long out of government. And they've kind of avoided that. But yeah, I mean, when you look around, I think you're right, the de facto referendum, the idea that that's the next general election will be fought on the basis of that. If they lose that, or no matter what happens, to be honest, I think Nicola Sturgeon, you know, does have half an eye on the exit. Yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, and it's quite tough to see who would replace her. There's certainly no obvious candidates. I mean, people often say in politics that a leader emerges, you know, when the time comes, someone will step up and everyone will look back and be like, oh, actually, yeah, they, they actually were quite, a, quite the obvious candidate. Uh, but certainly looking ahead to those things, there isn't an obvious candidate. There, there just isn't. And I think when you speak to people in the SNP, you get all sorts of different answers. Yeah. Some of them more credible than others, to be honest. Some of the names that are mentioned, you just can't imagine taking going into that role but you know things change and who knows absolutely so now moving away from edinburgh and scotch politics for a moment uh, let's turn our attention um, to a different conference the happenings at westminster where it has been another torrid week for the conservative party and the uk government on sunday before quasi quarting's screeching u-turn on abolishing the top tax rate, our Westminster correspondent and currently roving reporter tracked down one of um, the former Chancellor and obviously leadership contender Rishi Sunak's key supporters in the form of Scottish Conservative MSP Andrew Bowie. Um, They spoke to each other at the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. Hello, my name is Adam Brown. I am the Scotsman's Westminster correspondent, and I'm here in Birmingham Tory Conference with Andrew Bowie MP. How are you feeling? Is this all going very well? <laughs> well, I've been to quite a few Tory conferences, and this is the um, probably the one with the strangest atmosphere, uh, the strangest backdrop when we come into this conference, looking at the polls, and, and obviously the the, um, the fallout from the fiscal event uh, last Friday. So it's a strange atmosphere to be gathering, but look, it's party conference. Members are here, our activists are volunteers it's really good to be able to, to to gather with them to thank them for you know putting in the hard graft supporting us delivering leaflets you know doing all what they do to keep us in in the positions that we are in and keep the conservative party in government so it's good that we're here the atmosphere is interesting um and we look forward to the next few days i should say in the background you will be hearing some benny hill and some other tunes because the role of politics is we're never more than 10 meters away from steve gray and protesters he's following me around he followed me to welsh conference as well really yeah so now here he is is it homely yet are you like oh good to see you honestly or... i mean I've got, I've got a great relationship with steve you know yeah. I, I always stop and say hello and there's no reason to be rude right no um, i mean i'm not sure a lot of your colleagues i'm not necessarily sure feel the same i am sure they don't and he is incredibly annoying but kill them with kindness 
So, you know, not too long ago, Tory parties, well, I mean, you, you were a little bit behind in the polls, but Boris Johnson was a, a, a vaguely popular man. Yeah. And then there's what you call a fiscal event. It's not a budget, categorically not a budget, it's a mini budget, a fiscal event. And now the polling has gone uh, completely off piste and behind Michael Gove's in grounds. It's basically saying the government policy is not very good and he might not vote for it. Is this, is this normal? Is this the future of the party? What, what's happening? No, it's not normal. It's about as far from normal as it's possible to get out. Um, look, I... Michael said what he said this morning. I, um, I don't disagree with Michael, actually. I think we've got to look at some of the announcements that were uh, made last week and determine whether or not implementing these decisions on the back of huge sums in terms of borrowing is actually a good fiscal conservatism. Um, I spent much of the summer saying it wouldn't be. So, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, we lost the argument. Liz Truss is the leader. She's entitled to take decisions as she sees fit, and and uh, that's what she's doing. Her and Quasi Quateng, and and I think one of the good things about this week is we're actually going to hear from Quasi more about what their plans are for the country, more about what their plans are now that they're in government. And and whereas I, I'm not in a position to say right now that I fully support what they're doing. I'm at least willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and allow them to actually put more meat on the bones before people take their final decision as to say whether they're voting for or voting against. And at the minute, there isn't actually anything to vote for or vote not for. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll just have to wait and see and look forward to hearing more. So do you think it's bad policy or just bad communication? Or do you think there's a possibility... It's a combination of both. <laughs> okay, that's even worse. Yeah, look, I mean, it, 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 it's actually inconceivable to me that... The, the comms around this have been as bad as they actually are. I'm not I quite think sure silence how. is so good when you're making tax cuts and borrowing. <laughs> Look, I'm just not quite sure how. You've got some of the best people in the business. I know these people. A lot of them are my friends. And I'm not quite sure how we've, we're in a position where we have been so unable to, to communicate to the British people exactly what the government is trying to do, what they're trying to achieve. You know, we actually have unveiled the biggest um, intervention in terms of supporting people with their energy bills of any government in Europe. And yet that's all been lost because of our inability to actually communicate that and to talk about the good stuff. And there are there is some good stuff in that in that in that fiscal event, some really good stuff. But it's all been overshadowed and we've allowed the other side to grab the narrative and obviously we saw the market reaction and even Liz Truss herself has admitted that she should have done a better job of laying the groundwork so that, that didn't happen. And we are now where we are, where we're sitting sort of in the high twenties in the polls, uh, where the with the the, the, the the financial markets in a great deal of flux. Now, yes, that's happening across the world. But, you know, the, the collapse in the pound and all the rest of it we saw last week is a direct result of our inability to communicate what we were doing. So, yeah, there's huge questions to be asked, uh, answered by, by number 10 as to like how they were able to do that. I mean, you've worked for a prime minister before, uh, who was not necessarily the most popular. No. Um, but I know how good answers being accused, but there were answers, right? There were explanations. Um, with that background, I mean, when you see, the, when you said the story, story about uh, the Chancellor going to a champagne reception uh, and being urged to go further after giving the, the fiscal events, are you not, do you know, are you just tearing your hair out soon? I mean, yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah, well, what little of it is left after having a six week, having a six week old child at home. I am um, left tearing my hair out. It's embarrassing. It's the sort of thing that you just should not do. And I'm just not sure. You know, Quasi is an incredibly intelligent, eminently capable, good man. And I'm not quite sure how we managed to get this so wrong um, and why he took the decision to go uh, for drinks with, uh, with party owners after the fiscal event last week, given everything that was being said about it. So look, we, I mean, I, I, that's a question I have to ask, you have to ask Quasi, but it is, it is incredibly frustrating. Do you think the party can, and I know this is a long way from the big society and, <laughs> and everything, but even a long way from last year, Build Back Better. 
Well, yeah, I feel like the the party, like the idea of the party, the Tories, the Nazi party, which got rid of, right? You know, yeah. became socially liberal, fiscally conservative, yeah. uh, gay marriage, yeah. aspiration, and now it's tax cuts for the rich. Uh, and a hard line on immigration without actually any policy that works, uh, arguably, uh, depending on your views and the round of policy. I mean, do you, do you think this is going to get better? I mean, is it a U-turn? Well, it can get worse. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, would, I would caveat or, 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 or have take, a, take it to task slightly in the, the hard line on immigration. I think actually we're about to do something quite revolutionary, hopefully, on seasonal agricultural workers. I think we're going to be loosening some of the rules in terms of allowing people into work, transitory workers, all the rest of it, which is a very good thing. Um, and in terms of being socially liberal, I'd say the party is very comfortable being a socially liberal party now, uh, reflecting the the, the, the the British people in that way. It's the fiscal element of what we're trying to do, which I think is causing the most concern and the impact that will have and the optics uh, of what we are doing that we need to radically uh, address before things get even worse. Yeah. Uh, and now moving to a, a different uh, leader from the Party, who I don't think has had much controversy for several years, uh, old Douglas Ross. Yeah. Uh, how is that going? Are you, are you happy? And uh, I mean, Boris Johnson made his job harder. Is this going to make it harder still? Uh, or are we all happy in Social Conservatives? A united front. I'm absolutely uh, behind Douglas Ross. I think he is doing a... Look, I think that being leader of the Scottish Conservative Party is the most difficult job in British politics, right? Um, And he's doing the job uh, very, very well. Uh, It was only a year and a half ago that we recorded our best result in terms of votes cast in a Scottish election. He takes Nicola Sturgeon to task every week in First Minister's questions. He regularly gets the better of her in the debating chamber in the Scottish Parliament. And I think it's incumbent on all of us in the Scottish Conservatives to understand just how badly a divided party does in the eyes of the public to get behind Douglas, what he's doing, and support him as we move forward. He, so if your listeners won't realise this, there was a football match this morning uh, between the MPs and the political journalists, which the uh, journalists won 3-2. Uh, Douglas Ross was not there. Uh-huh. Uh, have you ever seen him play football? Uh, why were you, and you also, you were not there. Yeah, no. And these are the hard-hitting questions. <laughs> why did you not play football? Are you good at football? Have you played with Douglas? Who is a bad footballer? In my mind, I'm very good at football. Yeah. In, okay. in, in, in reality, I'm, I'm pretty shocking, but I enjoy it. I, the reason I didn't play this morning is I was talking to Martin Geisler of the BBC and trying to explain uh, what we were doing in Birmingham and what party yeah. conference was all about. So, uh, have I seen Douglas Ross play football? No, I haven't, but he's, in, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a UEFA qualified referee and linesman. So, I think he's, uh, uh, that's where his skill sets lie. I'm more, uh, and you say about Although he once off- gave an offside decision, not in Aberdeen's way, against the Rangers at Pataudry, which I'll never, still to this day, I'm not forgiven for. He did crucially uh, one year conference. I shot barged uh, Matt Hancock over. Uh, yeah. I say shot barged, it bordering on a push, and he fell onto the ball, his hand hit it, and he gave me a free kick uh, for handball. This is before I was covering Scottish politics. <laughs> there was no working relationship there. It was just a, a, a fantastic decision. So I fully support him as, as his officiating. Yes. Um, you mentioned uh, conference. What is conference all about? For those who don't know, are these things fun? Like, yeah. it, because I think for a lot of people outside, they think to be a person involved in politics, to take time off from work to come to a party conference is. I, I don't say it's, it's unusual. So, mate, I love so I love conference. Yeah, right. I mean, yours, this is twelve. This is a twelfth conference. But I came. I was coming as a member as an activist long at a YC or CFR as we call it those days. Well before I was a member of Parliament, and I. It's it's the one time of the year where activists, volunteers, uh, MPs, decision makers are all in the same place and are able to talk to each other and and listen to concerns, thank 
all the activists for what they're doing. So I think it's uh, it's a really really important uh, part of the, the 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 political year, which I always uh, since I've been elected, as you said, I've been coming since before them. But since being elected, I made a point of coming and meeting volunteers and members and saying thank you. Um, and they are fun. Party conferences are fun. You meet up with friends you only see every year at party conference. You're able to sit down. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a it's it's it. I, I enjoy a party conference, and this year actually is getting my shortest party conference um, ever because I'm going home uh, tomorrow morning. Given the fact that I've got a six-week-old uh, baby at home, but but even even now, I this is how much uh, store I put in party conference. How important it is. Made the point of getting here, thanking members, being seen, and um, getting around the conference centre. And, and yeah, it's it's really important. So I have two more questions, and they, they are a yes or no. But you you can elaborate if you'd like. And um, will you find the time to play in the football match next year? And who will this trust be the leader of the third party at the next party conference? Yes. I will play in the football match next year, that's on the record. And uh, yes, Liz Truss will be the leader of the Conservative Party going into the next general election. Okay. There's no, there's no smile as you say that. Um, look, I back, look, I back the other guy, right? I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I, quite, quite vociferously, yeah. uh, I think you'll remember. So, and that was only a few weeks ago that we had that election. Yeah. So it's- I'm it, sorry, I was like asking if you're in for legs. So that was well, precisely. So, I mean, it's, it, is, it is difficult for those of us that were in the forefront of the Rishi campaign to, uh, to see somebody else doing the job that you wanted your guy to do uh, and taking radically different decisions to the decisions that you know your guy would have taken. But she is the leader uh, and she is entitled to take those decisions uh, and it's up to the rest of us to uh, listen, to assess, to make our own minds up as to whether or not we uh, move forward. Divided parties do very badly with, uh, with the general public in this country. So it's up to her to reach out to those of us that you know, are feeling a little bit bruised over the, uh, after what's happened uh, over the summer, but also up to all of us to give her the support she needs to take this country forward. A broken heart, Andrew Berry. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs>It's so interesting to hear from Andrew Bowie from Alex in Birmingham, uh, obviously prior to the U-turn on Monday morning from, from Kwasi Kwarteng, but um, we've had some pulling out uh, as it stands yesterday for, for listeners on Wednesday, Andrew Bauer being one of those MPs in Scotland who is set to lose their seat. It's terrible polling, isn't it, for the Scottish Conservatives? It's a complete wipeout. Um, just quickly on the numbers, it's 46% of Scots will vote SNP. If there was a general election held tomorrow, 30% would vote Labour, 15% would vote Conservative, and 7%, I believe, would vote Liberal Democrat. That would result in uh, 53 seats for the SNP. Um, four for Scottish Labour and two for the Liberal Democrats and a complete Conservative wipeout. That's pretty much as bad as it gets, isn't it, for the Conservatives? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine <laughs> it being much worse. Uh, I think, you know, this poll, I think I'm right saying that it was went out between September 30th and October 4th. Yep, is that right? right? Yeah. Yeah, so this is soaking up all the... It's got everything in it. <laughs> uh, backlash to the mini-budget, yep. backlash to kind of Liz Truss's actions so far. Uh, and it's really, you know, the public making clear what they think about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, there's real questions for the Scottish Conservatives in the back of this. Um, in a way, it's not their fault. It's not Douglas Russell's fault. This is kind of like a wider UK problem, uh, not caused by him. But yeah, I mean, it's completely disastrous for them. I think if you look at it, I think one of the interesting things as well, which I know uh, you go into in your piece in the paper, which obviously people should read. Absolutely. <laughs> is that... Um, it's a good good result for Scottish Labour, but they are taking votes primarily from the Conservatives. Yeah. You know, they're kind of, I think in the words of uh, Savannah Comrades, who did the poll, they're kind of fishing in the unionist pond. Yeah. They're not taking votes from the SNP. Uh, so it's not that kind of, that kind of broad centre-left 
coalition in Scotland. It's still done on constitutional lines. Mm -hmm. uh, but it will give them a lot of hope, you know, becoming, you know, the second party of Scotland again, which is something they've is a key aim for them. I think it's fair to say as well, if you look at the seat projections, you know, what, um, in order to do that, you know, we use electoral calculus online, which, you know, you, you listening at home can, can fiddle about with the numbers to see what comes up. But that tends to also kind of understate the kind of tactical voting side of things and often understates kind of how marginal some of the seats are. So talking to, you know, internal party sources after this poll came out has been quite interesting because you know, Labour say that our poll in particular underestimates their potential gains on those sorts of numbers. They reckon that up to maybe seven or eight seats are in play in Scotland because there's so many SNP Labour marginals that there may be a matter of a few hundred votes either side. And um, the Scottish Conservatives believe that they'll hold on to probably three seats. In this case, you know, thinking about John Lamont's seat, Alice Jack's seat, and, um, and, you know, another one of the border's seats that would be safe enough and would be ripe for that sort of kind of unionist tactical voting to bring it back to that constitutional line and line in the sand between all of the parties. But this is, I think, most tellingly, this is the best polling for Labour in Scotland since October 2017, which was the height of the Jeremy Corbyn kind of bounce. But it's the worst polling for the Scottish Conservatives since 2015. It pretty much matches their result in the general election in 2015, when, of course, the SNP wiped the floor. Now, bringing it back to a constitutional sense, the de facto referendum requires a 50% pro-independence majority. Um, or popular of the popular vote for them to consider that they have won the de facto referendum. 2015, of course, was 49.9% SNP. So I think the SNP will think that's in play. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's interesting about it is Keir Starmer's favourability yeah. ratings, which, you know, have gone up by 4%, uh, I think I'm right in saying. Uh, and I think it's just, you know, it's playing into these kind of hopes that Labour have of some kind of revival. Do you think yeah. that actually matters, though? Because... Does it not speak more about the unpopularity of Dan of Liz Truss as the new Prime Minister rather than, you know, a massive Labour revival? Do you think it really makes I think makes it does. I think that's exactly what it's playing into. But I think you're talking about a UK-wide general election when there's a, a real, well, perceived to be a real prospect of a Labour government. Mm -hmm. I think that's when it starts to make a difference when Keir Starmer is seen as potential Prime Minister material. I think as well, just touching on the Constitution, you know, we basically polled on the, you know, the standard Scottish independence, yes, no question. And it's barely shifted. You know, the dial has not shifted, which... Although these are great results for the SNP, don't get me wrong, it's, their success continues to be incredible. I think they'll be a bit concerned about the fact you've got this massive fallout from the mini-budget, you've got the plummeting value of the pound, we've had all the long-running unhappiness with the government in Westminster, back of Brexit, all these perfect storm of problems, and yet the dial on independence is barely shifting. And I think if they, you know, we're talking about, you know, potentially they want a referendum in October next year, it's not far away at all. And that dial is just not moving. And I think, you know, they might say that if we get into a campaign period, this becomes a dominant political issue. That's when you start to see movement again. But the other side of that is that we've had a referendum before. People are extremely entrenched now. Scottish politics is all about the constitutional divide. That is the dominating thing in how people vote. People know what they think about this. And there is that don't know contingent uh, who are all to play for. But I think the fact the dial isn't moving, I mean, that would be a bit of a source of concern. And it's not moved for a long time. I mean, this isn't just, we're not talking about just from poll to poll here. I mean, we've been doing this this particular tracker with Savannah Comrades for a good year, year and a half, if not nearly two years now. 
And apart from that kind of period of time during 2021, when there was that big bounce up to about 58%, I think was the height of height of it, the, the independence dial has stuck firmly at 50-50. A couple of points, margin of error either way. We've never seen more than a margin of error shift in either direction in the last, certainly in the last year. I think the lowest it's been for yes has been maybe 47 under our polling. And that's reflected in the polling across the board, isn't it? I mean, it's just... <laughs> the question I suppose the S&P will be asking is how the hell can can they get above that 50% mark? And It's a real problem. Certainly, just quickly, for the, for, for the just say no brigade, it's the perfect scenario. It is. I mean, like you say, there was that period during COVID where it seemed like things were moving and now they've just gone back to this static, almost 50-50 scenario where nothing ever seems to change and it's just we seem to be stuck in a complete rut with this. So, I mean, here's a question for you. Do you think these, frankly, awful results for the Scottish Conservatives, for the Conservatives north of the border, do you think they will increase pressure on Douglas Ross? I mean, there's rumours in Holyrood, uh, reported rumours, that he's facing challenges from within, within his own party. There's supposedly two different groups of MSPs who want to oust him. But on the face of it, I can't really see how that would change things in some way. There's not an obvious contender to take over the Scottish Conservatives and it doesn't really seem, I mean, whatever you think about Douglas Ross, he certainly doesn't seem to be the one who's causing them issues necessarily. I think, I think the, the classic thing, I think you have to take what has been reported in terms of the, the kind of plotting against Douglas Ross with quite a hefty pinch of salt at the minute for the sole reason that no one's put a name forward in these reports. And I think until someone puts a name forward as a potential successor, you kind of have to look at it and go, they're probably just complaining outwardly about, you know, Douglas's um, leadership. Maybe they feel that there's a lack of um, direction in certain areas or a lack of, lack of focus on certain things. I think you have to bear in mind that for the last year, Douglas has been pretty ruthlessly attacked by some of some of the MSP group for failing to take on advice from anyone but his closest advisors. We've got, you know, the Director of Communications and a, a handful of policy people close to Douglas who are, are leaving at the minute. And I think, you know, while he's struggled in recent weeks, he can, bear, he can hardly be blamed for what's going on down south. And I think the majority of the MSP group up here understand that. Just going on the polling on that, what is fascinating, genuinely fascinating from a, from a, from a polling point of view, is that the, the numbers for Westminster voting intentions and Holyrood voting intentions are different. Now, that sounds like a really basic point, right? But the first time we did this polling with both, they were nigh on identical. I mean, it was maybe a half a percentage point difference for a couple of, of, of the parties. But in this case... Conservative collapse at the general election, which is what that polling shows, is not reflected in a Conservative collapse in Holyrood. They're 17%, I think, in the constituency vote. They're 19% in the Holyrood vote. Yes, that is worse than where they were. But I think if Douglas was under real pressure, those numbers would be closer to 15%. I think one of our competitor polls um, from The Times had... Uh, and actually potentially Salvation as well for, for the pro-UK campaign group, Scotland and Union, had the Conservatives level with the Scottish Greens in terms of seats and percentages. I think if that becomes entrenched, he's in deep trouble. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think, yeah, I think you're right to say that, yeah, there's no names being put to this and the names that have been put forward in just kind of general newspaper speculation, uh, people like Stephen Kerr, Morris Golden, Jamie Green, I think Megan Gallagher as well, all you know, high-profile MSPs in, in Holyrood, but not necessarily, you know, people you'd expect to come in and make an immediate difference or 
do something that Douglas Ross isn't doing. And I think you're right to bring up the difference between Holyrood and Westminster, because I think the collapse is coming because of UK Conservative moves. It's not coming because of things that Douglas Ross has necessarily done. And voters clearly seem to recognise that there is a difference in the Scottish Conservatives now in a way that maybe five, six years ago they didn't, where, you know, the Scottish Tories were just a branch office. Maybe because they recognise that Douglas is different and Douglas has come out for Boris Johnson in the past. You know, I think he's been slightly... I th- I, my instinct is he's been miffed with the last few weeks of having to go out and support tax cuts only to be then, you know, fatally undermined on Monday morning by the tax cut. I think he is outwardly supportive of Liz Truss and I think internally very frustrated. And I, I think that comes across in his public profile and his public backing of trust. If he was shouting from the rooftops about the growth agenda and all of the stuff we've heard from down south, then I think it might be a different case and voters might see them as the same side of, of the coin. I don't think they do. I think voters have clocked it. The only other thing I want to say about this poll, which I think is quite hilarious, is the, the UK-wide seat projection mm-hmm. on the back of these figures, mm-hmm. which has... Uh, essentially the SNP becoming the official opposition in Westminster because Labour would have 519 seats. It's astonishing, yeah. The Conservatives would be on 37, SNP would have 53. I mean, that would just be a completely ludicrous situation in so many ways. I have to say, actually, I think this is... I I think it's highly, highly unlikely, right, that we end up in a situation where probably Ian Blackford is standing up at PMQs every week and berating Keir Starmer, right? I don't see that happening. I think in reality, the Tories will end up with maybe uh, maybe three figures just of, of MPs. Yeah. But I think that this situation that we've projected today actually is really good news for the Scottish independence movement because it would be front and centre of PMQs every single week for five years. And I think actually Labour should be careful what they wish for when it comes to you know, knocking the Conservatives off that official opposition because a sustained campaign in Westminster from the SNP in the face of a Labour government on and banging that anti-democratic drum could work. I don't know if you agree. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I, I think you're right that it would create a situation where, you know, the Scottish independence movement, the SNP are front and centre in Westminster. But I think it also causes, a Labour government would cause difficult problems in other ways. I mean, it's, this is such a kind of old trope in Scottish politics, but if a, if a Labour government introduced some kind of meaningful constitutional change, I mean, they always talk about Devo Max and we, we won't get into what that means. It means different things to different people, but, you know, the Gordon Brown is supposedly working in this, uh, well, he is working on this big kind of constitutional revamp of the UK. And if there was meaningful constitutional change, you don't really know to what extent that would move the dial. And to some extent, I mean, the SNP might disagree with this, but to some extent support for them is, you know, reliant on people not liking the Tories and not liking the Westminster government and the SNP being able to present themselves as a credible centre-left alternative to that. And I think that'd be more difficult with a Labour government. So I think there's there's different aspects to it, but I do see what you mean. It'll be interesting to see what happens, but that's all we've got time for from this week's episode of The Steamy. Join us next week when we will be going through the Supreme Court hearings will be reporting from SNP conference as well and hopefully you will join us then. Thank you very much Alistair for joining me this week as always and thank you very much at home for listening. Bye bye.